0: Let's um, pray, and then we will uh, get into our lesson. God, we thank you again for your forgiveness. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who is your plan. He is the one you designed to... He is the one that you sent to fulfill your design for our redemption. He is the one who carried out the plan that you orchestrated. We thank you for your spirit, who you sent to apply that salvation to our hearts and to carry us and keep us on that path as we go all the way to the end where you will ultimately save us. God, we thank you for um, these truths that we rehearse and learn, pray that you would help us this morning as we dig into why Jesus had to die. Pray that you would help us, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're on question 24. Last week's question was, why must the Redeemer be truly God? And there was a long answer, but... Today's answer is even longer. (laughs) Um, I thought Pastor Matt did a fantastic job of driving us to Scripture and asking that question of, okay, we see here that because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And also that he'd be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Because a human cannot bear the righteous anger of God. Right? He and then a human could not overcome death. So the savior had to be God. But Pastor Matt drove us to, okay, that makes sense. But where does Scripture give us this answer of the why he had to be God? And and he and I were talking later this week, last after his lesson this week about sometimes in Scripture you don't get Verses that just lay out some of these doctrines in one little tidy verse. For instance, the Trinity. You're not going to find one verse that says, The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three persons in one. You're just not going to find it. So, how do you come up with these and say that the Bible teaches that? Well, because the Bible teaches all kinds of truths, and it's our job to synthesize. To bring together those truths and understand how do they fit. That's our job as Christians. And that's what for 2,000 years Christians have been doing is taking these truths and say, okay, if this is true, Jesus died and Jesus rose, then what does that mean? And how do those fit together? And that's, our, that's what God's called us to do. In fact, it tells us in Timothy that we're called to be rightly dividing the word of truth. So today's lesson, though, today's question, before we get into that question, I want us to take a step back. We're actually right almost at the halfway mark. There's 52 questions in this catechism. We're at question 24, but I want us to just take a step back and ask ourselves, why are we learning these questions? (laughs) Why are we doing this? I mean, why did we do Sunday school? We can maybe ask as well, but I just want to hear from you. Why are these truths important for us to to talk about. Josh. Foundation for the of our faith. Why would it matter that you? we have the foundation? Can't we just say, well, these guys are smart? Because without a foundation, it's like a house built on sand. Yeah. When you build a house, you construct it, right? And what's the big trend these days for people's faith? The word isn't construct. It's deconstruct well if you build something on sand it will deconstruct itself won't it you're right Josh we need that for that to understand what we're built on Why else did I see your hand Teresa yeah uh, there's a lot of
1: opposition in the world and a lot of different religions
0: mm-hmm. so we need, need to be able to defend. yeah be ready to give an answer Pastor says be ready to give an answer yeah that's from Peter yeah Donna? Words and five word have I hidden in my heart that I might not have against thee. It's for our own good that we should learn these things that we might not have been the Holy God. Ooh, right. These, especially when we went through the Ten Commandments that really helped us see how God wants us as people to be. Yeah. There's really no wrong answer. Well, there could be wrong answers here. Yes. I think, too, it helps us. rest of scripture in context if you understand these truths and then you can read the Bible then you understand the Bible within the context of this it makes a lot more sense for the rest of scripture. Right. I think there's a lot of opposition sometimes to hearing what you just said to say that there's a framework of truths that help us read the Bible. Um, Because that would sound like on one hand we are building this And then that's how we read the Bible through that. But that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is the Bible, we read the Bible, and we observe these truths, and that builds the framework, the context for then, as I continue to read the Bible, to understand it. It sets the story. It's It's, it's a story. The whole thing is. mm -hmm. And and if you can see the. get glimpses of the bird's eye view of. Right, it, it helps you understand when you hit weird passages like people dressing up and coming to the Israelites and saying, we're from a faraway land. If you, you, We read those and we're like, what in the world? But if we have the context of whole things, the story of what that big story is that God's doing, these are just pieces of that. Exactly. Josh? A good
1: example sermon For he healed me. And knowing the context of the whole story, like Jeff was saying, actually gives you such kind of a deeper understanding and appreciation mm-hmm. for that
0: simple act of him touching the leper first. Yeah. So let me ask a little bit different question. If... Of all the truths of the Bible and all these these truths that we're calling catechism, this way of formally teaching our the doctor of the Bible, of all of them, if somebody had to ask you what is the most important one that you need to hold on to, what would you say? That is a very subjective question. That's okay. What would which of these truths so far have we heard? That like, this is what I, I could, Norma's trying to work on memorizing them. I think we all should be trying, (laughs) but like of these, which of them so far has been, you're like, I've got to hold on to this the most. Or if maybe you know one that's coming up, what would be, I'm not really asking your favorite because that would be like what you like the most, but this is like, what do I need the most that I know I need to keep on to? Wesley.
1: Yeah. why does the Redeemer need to be fully human and
0: fully God? Yeah. Those are, those are the ones that you think you need to remember the most? Okay. Josh, you had your hand up. Yeah. No matter what I do, no matter how good I try to be, I can't be good enough. That's why i to be Yeah. When we got to the end of the Ten Commandments, we saw no matter what we do, we're going to fail those. And we saw that's why I need a Redeemer. Yeah. Someone else? That Christ is God in human form. And one and the same. Yeah. That was, that, that's such a rich truth to hold on to. And, and it's key for us to hold on to. Because if we make him one or the other only, things are going to fall apart.
1: <laughs> what everybody's saying, I totally agree with. I think the scripture that captures it was the one I was looking for, um, where it talks about um, in Colossians 1 that Christ is preeminent, that first mm-hmm. chapter of Colossians. That hes I mean, there's who he is is the preeminent, top, most important thing. All the other truths flow yeah. from that.
0: Yeah, Christ is preeminent. hes He's the top. Everything flows from there.
1: Yeah, so all these things that were just said.
0: Yeah, they're all coming through that. Yeah. Yep. So if I was to say what are one, the ones that I need to remember the most, it's today's question and next week's question. So today's question is, and this is a long one to memorize, so I'm not going to try to have us do that today, but why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? The answer is, since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary, atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. Now, to (laughs) be. I think Paul, the Apostle Paul, would also say that that's probably the one that he has to remember the most. Because when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, talking right about the gospel, he says, for I delivered unto you as of utmost importance. The most important. (laughs) And he considered this doctrine of the gospel to be the thing that you need to hold on to the most. And I think it's getting at a little bit of what Josh said. Like right there, I've got to remember. Next week's question is, how much of my sins are forgiven? And you can see they go hand in hand. Why well, I would want to hold on to these? So let's explore this. Let's unpack this a little bit because there's a lot in there. And we ain't going to cover it all. We just can't. But I think this question is getting at the why is getting at two different things. It's, it's asking why was death? Necessary for our redemption. Why was death necessary? Because the question is asking, right? Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? You can look at this question two ways. First, way it's asking why was the Redeemer, why was death necessary? Couldn't he do it without a death? And the other part of it, I think, is also asking the why of what was the purpose of his death? So why did he have to die? In itself, well, could he have done something else to apply forgiveness to us? And then, interrelated to that as well, what was with when he did die? Why? What purposes did he accomplish? So, let me just unpack the 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 whole answer. Um, and I, if you look at the answer in the bulletin, it has the children's answer, and it starts right here: "At Christ died, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God." I think, if you just include this other phrase, that's the heart of the whole thing. Because as I read the second sentence, it's just using bigger words saying the same thing. <laughs> because this substitutionary part is a big word that can be summarized in, in our place. That's what substitutionary means. <laughs> So, kids, don't worry about what substitutionary is unless you want to impress your friends with a three syllable word. It means he died in our place. He stood in my place. In my place, condemned, he stood. And then the atoning death part is the death is the punishment. There it's there. And then forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life is covered in this power and penalty of sin. So, we're just going to pack that middle part, okay? We don't have to get all the rest of that because I think it's saying – it's kind of expounding a little bit, but not much. So uh, that first phrase, since death is the punishment for sin, Ezekiel 18.20 literally says this, the soul who sins shall die. And then he goes on to say who dies for whose sin. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. In other words, praise God, William is not going to die for my sins. He needs forgiveness for his own sins, not not mine. Nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be on himself. That's saying that everyone stands before God to answer for their own sin. And the consequence of sin is that death. Where else in the Bible have you also heard this truth? Think Genesis. What did God tell Adam and Eve? If you eat the fruit, you will what, Liam? Surely die. Surely die, exactly. <laughs> In the Hebrew, it doesn't have the word surely there. It actually says dying, you will die. It's kind of a Hebraism where they'll, if they really want it to be important, they'll kind of double it up. Dying, you will die. Wages of sin, right? For Romans six twenty three. This is a truth that God has said all the way through scripture. Right? And even when Cain killed Abel, God says, I'm going to require man's life. The next part of the phrase is that God, Christ died willingly. What does it mean to say that Christ died willingly, Cru- Crusoe? What? Did you get up willingly today out of bed? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. What, did, what does that mean when I say that? Uh, did... Happy? happy? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, <laughs> right? That'd be a great way to put it. Like yeah. You were told to get up probably, right? Unless you're one of those boys that has an alarm and gets himself up and makes the breakfast for his parents and cleans the house and says, no. Parents, I'm. No, that ain't you. Okay. <laughs> That's Ava. No. Okay. She sleeps in the longest.
1: She sleeps in the longest.
0: But willingly, it's meaning happily out of your own heart and desire. Right? Christ said in John 10, 18, no one takes it, his life, from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I was just reading today or this week in John where he dies on the cross. He gives up his spirit. No, you don't ever talk about someone dying by just saying, okay, I'm going to choose to die now. Now That's different than someone killing themselves. That's not what I'm talking about. That's still not the same as, all right, I'm dead now. And they just give them that ultimate power to be able to say, all right, it's time for me to die now. He chose, even though they brutally did all that to him. They hung him on a cross. The father poured all of his wrath. When all the wrath and whatever that means was poured on the son, at that point... Christ said, okay, it is finished. It was enough. And he died of his own will. He wanted to do that. Why? (laughs) Because he loves us. Ooh, that's awesome. It says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Which is also interesting because he did it willingly even though he was told to do it. Second part of the next part of the phrase says Christ died in our place, and this substitutionary idea that in our place is all through. I'm my reading plan, I'm also in Leviticus, and that's a difficult book to walk through for for us. But what I'm doing is just as I go through it, I read I just underline the same phrases I see all the time, and it's making it very clear to me these themes. And one of them is when they when the um, Israelite had to bring a sacrifice of a goat or a lamb or whatever it is. If it was an animal, he would bring it. If it was a sin offering, he would bring it to the priest. And he would put his hand on the head of that animal. he turn it away. And the priest would kill it while his hand's there. It's like transferring my sin to that animal. In his place, that animal was picturing the need to have a substitute. And then we get to Isaiah, and he's prophesying of what the Messiah would do, and it says, But he, the Messiah, the servant, suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. That means our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see that in our place? He died in our place and he took all of that that we deserved. The next part is, it says to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin. So what is the penalty of sin? Death. We already talked about that, Genesis 3, right? Romans six twenty three for the wages. How many of you ever getting, gotten wages for what you've done? Oh, you don't work. You do work. Yeah, but mom and dad don't pay me. <laughs> Will's doing, Will cleans the, the church here once a week. Today, Mr. Donnie's going to bring him wages for what he did in a check. And you are going to... The wages, the payment for sin, it's death. And that's not just physical death. That's eternal separation from God. Eternal death. That's why the next phrase says, but the free gift of God is not death, eternal death. It's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then, so that's the penalty of sin. When Christ died... He removed the penalty of sin for you, which means he removed death for you. But then he also removed the power of sin. Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. It was hard to find one verse that captured all this in Romans because in Romans, the first five chapters... Paul's talking about the penalty of sin and the consequence of breaking the law. And then chapter six through seven, he's talking about the power of sin. We're slaves, he talks about. We're slaves to God. You're not free. It's power over you. And he's saying the law of the spirit of life, that means what Jesus did, sets you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So his death removed the power of sin so that you can now, if you are in Christ, you see that in both of those, you have to be in Christ. But if you're in Christ, you now have a choice. When you're tempted, you're not a slave. I no longer am a slave. I can say, no, I'm not going to fear. I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to disobey. I'm going to obey. Before Christ put made you a son or daughter, you did not have that power. You were a slave to sin. That's what we talk about. The power of sin has been removed from you. There's one P that's missing, though, from that. Does anybody know what other P related to sin is missing? Power and penalty are now yours. You experience that. I have I don't have to sin. I do, but I don't have to now because the power has been removed. The penalty, I stand no condemnation. What's the other P? Matt knows probably which P I'm talking about. I feel like I know it, but I can't think of it. The presence. Ah. Right? The presence of sin. (laughs) So when Jesus died and then Jesus applies, the spirit applies salvation to your heart immediately the penalty is removed because God makes a declaration like a judge. He says, you are righteous in Christ. He also breaks the power of sin right then so that you now have the ability to say no to sin. However, we know at the end of Romans 7, Paul talks about this. Sometimes I don't say no because the presence doesn't go away. But Christ did save you from the presence of sin, but not till the end. When Christ takes you home by death or by him coming in the skies, then the presence of sin is gone too. And that's actually guaranteed as well by the resurrection. The Next phrase. This is getting at the purpose. So Christ had to die because God required the death of a substitute that was equal, but also a substitute that could bear the brunt. But he did it. To rescue you from the power and penalty of sin. And to bring us back to God. So picture Genesis 3 or Genesis 2. God made this garden and he hung out with his people. There was perfect fellowship. Like they could hang out, walk together. Can you imagine it? Like the, the Jeff and Tiff's property, you guys, is, it's not the Garden of Eden. But when I go there, I love the woods there. It's, it's, it's kind of blocked off from the rest. Of it, and I just feel like it's awesome. Like Especially when you did the worship thing out in the woods. I just feel like... Can you imagine being in the garden, though? For you you'd never existed before. All of a sudden, you're, you like discover this world because you just now made. And you'd be constantly, wow, this is so incredible. And God... Is right there with you. And he says, yeah, I know. Isn't it awesome? (laughs) And you go, you're awesome. And that was this this togetherness. And then when Adam and Eve sinned, they could not be together, right? They couldn't because God's holy. We've talked about that. He cannot bear the presence of sin. But he made you to be with him. He made you to be in communion with him, to, to exist together. So the whole one of the big reasons here, First Peter three eighteen, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the substitutionary part that he might bring us to God. One of the purposes is that you can be back with him, Wesley. Something i always really wondered: was, how big was the garden? That is a
1: great question. We have
0: some clues in Scripture, actually, about how big it was. Yeah, and plus, the rivers,
1: three rivers are in that, so it must be pretty big. I've mm-hmm. uh, also seen in, like, children's books, it's just a small little actual garden, a couple trees here and there, and then there's
0: a hill and big... Uh, <laughs> Got it. So nobody was there to take pictures or to draw, right? But we do have descriptions of the rivers. We know that it at least was in that area. And what's interesting is if you look through the Old Testament prophets near the end, it starts to describe pictures that are like the Garden of Eden, but for the future. And it talks about the glory of God covering the face of the earth, like expanding. And the reason that would happen is because God made these image bearers. And when two image bearers, man and woman, get together, they make other image bearers. And that means more of the glory of God, to the extent that you're showing what God looks like, is growing. Which meant that if things had gone without Adam and Eve sinning, the garden would have expanded. Because God made those image bearers to have dominion, to tend, and cause it to expand, and it would have covered the earth. If, if you want to start to get your head a little bit into what this might be, this book may be above you, Liam, and Issa, but Ava, you might enjoy this. C.S. Lewis wrote a space trilogy, and the first one is called Out of the Silent Planet, and it's science fiction, but it's a Christian allegory. When you get to the second book, it's called Perelandra. it has this, this guy – ends up in this other world and the experiences of what is just awesome emotion and just this experiences they're hard to describe. And Lewis just puts it into words. I feel when I read that book, it gives me a little taste of what it might have been like to wake up in the garden as a brand new person or what it might be like in the eternal state to walk around with God. It's, it's awesome. Josh. We're on a big rabbit trail, anyway. Yeah. So go ahead. Too
1: much, but you were talking about the of ever expanding. Yeah. I wonder if that's a
0: heavenly model of the entire universe, because we know the universe is ever expanding. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but what I do know is, if you get to the end of Revelation, it talks about the pre- Christ being there. And they're not being in a need for light because he is the light there. But you see rivers coming from the throne, and it's very much like the Garden of Eden, but better. And so we know that it's going to be completely immersed in, in the glory of God. But here's the point to bring us back on track Christ died on the cross, and one of the reasons is so that you can experience that. If you repent, of your sins, and say, I can't do this, I'm not good enough, and I've been totally awful enough to deserve your wrath, I need you. When you come to Christ, that, he did that to bring you to him. Then, finally, why does this matter? So, why I said one of these these questions is one of the ones that I need to hang on to the most It's because daily I need to remember this truth. I daily need to. So there's a little book called The Gospel Primer or Primer. I say primer, but it's probably Primer. Whatever. I love this paragraph from there. He's talking about the power of sin in my life. It says, As long as I am stricken, overwhelmed, and crippled by the guilt of my sins, I'll be captive to them. And I'll keep recommitting the very sins about which I feel most guilty. The devil is well aware of this fact. He knows that if he can keep me tormented by sin's guilt, he can dominate me with sin's power. The gospel, however, slays sin at this root point and thereby thereby nullifies sin's power over me So the forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel, this truth that we've been looking at this morning, liberates me from sin's power because it liberates me first from the guilt and in preaching. uh, We stand up here and preach. You need to do that to yourself. Like you need to preach to yourself because your other sin's presence just... You need to preach such forgiveness to myself is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation. As a nullifier, that means an eliminator of sin's power in my life. On a daily basis, you need to remind yourselves of these truths. Like, start your day with this. In the middle of your day, when temptation or discouragement is overwhelming you because you failed again, you need to remind yourself that Christ stood in your place and He has removed the penalty of sin. And he's broken that power so that you can say, Christ, you're worth this. You're worth me saying no to this. And you know it'll also make you hunger for that final day. The last thing I want to just show is just there's a little song that it's literally what you're about to see. It's just like four little lines that I think captures the heart of the gospel that we used to sing. At our previous church that we were at. But we would also sing it as a little bit of a lullaby to Wesley as a baby. And then I think he knows which one I'm about to sing. Or not sing, I'm going to show you. It's called the Gospel Song. It says, Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin. By his death I live again. Putting that in your head on a daily basis. Why this matters, put that in your head so that you can remember and have power to please him and get through those days, right? So why else to you does this matter, these truths of the gospel that we're talking about? Why does it matter that we know this truth? all at once I think it produces Donna.
1: peace
0: yeah it produces peace isn't that one of the scriptures I feel like that we went through yeah upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and that's a couple different meanings there on peace there's the peace that he brings because we're no longer enemies But there's that sense of peace as well that it brings right Josh going
1: on. Right. because no matter what we do, we're not good enough,
0: but he is, and that allows us to walk in that. Place. Right. We were talking, I'm oh, sorry, I um, just about like, a few weeks ago, and it really stuck with me,
1: the sufficiency of his grace, mm-hmm. that his death covered it all.
0: And yeah. It's done. Like There's nothing... There's nothing more I can add to it. Yeah. He's enough. He did uh, did the sacrifice. He paid the penalty. He died. So
1: I did it. Yeah. Matt. Um, I've never been a Catholic, but the first big chunk of my life as a Christian, I did penance. Mm. So I had sin, and I didn't call it penance. Mm hmm. But I felt like I had to do... And it's so funny because I never said this in my head. Like, it wasn't a dialogue. But if I had sinned, I felt like I had to spend some time being good before I could start praying again. And it was this, these kind of truths that spurred me on to believe... No, that's not how this works at all. And at first it seemed so audacious to... Sin and then turn right around and say, and to act like I'm still in God's good grace. Because it seems like if I just sin, I'm out of His grace. But that's not how it works. And so it seemed audacious, but I have found just in my own life, and and that actually that book that you quoted a minute ago, the Gospel Primer, mm-hmm. he talks a lot about this. That that's actually what's been the most motivational thing to me to not sin. Yeah is jumping right back in mentally that I'm in God's good God's good grace. I don't have to do something to get back into that. Yeah. That actually has had the effect of growing me more than me thinking I had to do something to get back into God's. That actually that just made everything worse. Yeah. But just on a practical note, you know. Yeah. I just sinned, but I can I can right now return to God. I don't it, have to like take a day of feeling really bad about myself.
0: And that, that that goes against our human nature. It does. Because our I human know. nature, and kids, you guys get this. When you know you've done something wrong, you don't feel like it would be right for mom and dad to just come up and give you a hug and say, all right, you're forgiven. It doesn't feel right. It feels like i got to make up for it.
1: It's like if you've taken a trip with your kids, like... If they blow it, there's a part of you as a parent that wants to go. We're not going.
0: I, I, yeah, I've done that. (laughs) You've
1: blown it, you know, or if you're on a trip and the kids are misbehaving, you you've ruined the vacation, you know. But the reality is that that's not that's not how it works. Right. That God turns around and says no matter it doesn't matter what you I mean your forgiveness is complete not because I'm just like a big grandpa that forgets things, but yeah. because your sin has been paid for. Yeah. You know? You're not going to ruin the vacation.
0: Right. We, it goes against our human nature, but mm-hmm. that is what the point is of grace is it's not by works. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace, is what Paul says. Yeah. Let's pray. God, we... I'm, I'm just in awe of your grace. It feels offensive to me at times that, that I can't make up for my sin, but yet that's what grace is. And, and it's the lie that I believe sometimes that I can make up for it because that's pride. It says, God, your sacrifice wasn't enough. Help me to remember that you are sufficient. And I, I pray that you would help these truths push us to living in a way that reflects that grace. Because you didn't save us and give us that grace to sin more, but to impel us, to drive us to look more and more like Jesus. So I pray that these gospel truths would hold us secure when we fail, but these gospel truths would push us to holiness as well. In Jesus' name, amen.